This time on Watchers of Tomorrow, Kirk tries pony play. I just can't get that out of my head. <laughs> Hello everyone, welcome to Watchers of Tomorrow, the sci-fi review critique show that's putting the humanities back in science fiction. My name is Gepwin and I am joined as always by my friend and co-host Dr. Izix. Hi! And this week we go back to ancient Greece in space! We've already done ancient Rome, I guess is about... Wait, we already also did ancient Greece with the gods. I'm pretty sure, okay. yeah. We've done ancient yeah. Rome, ancient Greece... But this is not a rerun. Ancient but... Nazis. <laughs> it's also not a, not a near-Earth planet thing. Yeah, this is Plato's Stepchildren, one of the strangely lesser-known episodes as far as like the general... Uh, like consensus of like episode names and things, but one that was kind of held in fame and infamy for some things some it did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we'll get to that in the episode. So this episode was written by Mir Donsky, who wrote contemporary television, but this was his only Star Trek writing credit. Mm -hmm. And it guest stars... Barbara Babcock, again, who she showed up as the voice of one of the Tholians in Tholian Web, and now she is playing Philena, the wife of the leader dude. She's been in a number of roles in Star Trek previously, but yeah, we've, we've talked about her plenty before. Liam Sullivan, who is playing Parman, the leader of this weird community of Plato people. He was in a lot of other contemporary shows like Perry Mason, Bonanza, Twilight Zone, things of that oeuvre. Uh, later, he went on to do a lot of uh, roles in uh, soap operas, things like that. And the most notable guest star in this episode is Michael Dunn, who plays Alexander. He was a little person actor who was known for roles like Mr. Big in Get Smart and his reoccurring role as Dr. Lovelace on the original Wild Wild West. So the, uh, the, the, the mad scientist villain, yes. Like, if you have only seen the movie, it just shows you how much neat, uh, horrible, horrible jokes at this guy's expense there are in that movie for no reason. Yep. Because that movie was horrible and hated its own source material. <laughs> Disappointing. We don't have to think about that. We're back in the happy 60s where there's just <laughs> normal amounts of racism. Oh, oh. hmm. That's also awkward, but in a different way. <laughs> mm -hmm. Anyway, that's all of the guest stars we have today because there were a few background characters. One guy who has like a sort of speaking role. He's got a beard. He's sort of Greek looking. It's fine. Not super relevant. All right, let's jump in because there's a weird amount to talk about with this episode. Yeah. The Enterprise responds to a distress signal from a previously unknown planet, one which they point out has no signs of life but is rich in a rare and powerful mineral called Kerbodyne. Will this matter at all throughout the episode? Possibly. It's one of the only times that they mention something at the beginning of an episode that might actually matter by the end of the episode. Surprise! <laughs> Kirk, Spock, and McCoy beam down to a marble room that looks straight out of ancient Greece. There they are greeted by Alexander, a little person in Greek-style robes, who explains that the people of this planet are called Platonians. They are originally from their own home system, but it went nova several thousand years ago, and after that they bummed around ancient Earth for a while, 
became disciples of Plato, and then when ancient Greece fell, they moved on to create this utopia here based on Platonian ideas. So he's like, well, we don't really have any ideas of our own. We'll just take this guy's stuff and leave. I mean, that's what we did. Yeah, true. (laughs) He suddenly seems to be pulled out of the room by an unseen force, and they are all led to another chamber where a woman named Philena is tending to a sick man lying in a lounge chair. This is Parmen the Philosopher King. This is going all in on the Plato stuff here, oh, isn't yeah. it? Oh, yeah. More than is even obvious. It's actually weirdly apt. McCoy examines him and discovers a severe leg infection that has been let to go completely out of hand. Uh, McCoy takes this hypo out of his bag, which then suddenly floats out of his hands as Parman asks where it should be injected, and then, with t- some sort of telekinetic powers, injects himself with the hyperspray. Well, um, I guess McCoy could just sort of sit over there and tell them what to do now, I guess. Later on, Felena explains that the reason the infection is so bad is because they don't actually have doctors here, because their mental powers are so great that they don't really need physical fixing like that except for the fact that their mental powers are so great that they are so immensely physically weak that even the smallest scratch or break in the skin will become infected and life-threatening so this is sort of you you got a lot of armor on but no hit points yeah yeah (laughs) they don't need doctors because anytime they sustain any sort of injury at all they die makes perfect sense to me uh how many of these guys are on this planet then it's like 38, a, I think, yeah. they say. <laughs> they probably were more before. Yes. Um, you guys maybe want to like have some kids or something at this point. Well, she explains that they long ago stopped having to worry about all of this physical stuff, except for the you know whole dying of infection thing, and that they are, in fact, all thousands of years old. You don't look like a, you know, a day over 35, lady. Suddenly, objects in the room begin to fly around as Parman goes into a fever-induced psychosis and his mental powers go sort of loose. Do that or there's poltergeist hanging out here. He even threatens the Enterprise, which starts being buffeted by the telekinetic waves and pulled into the atmosphere. Oh, no, not again. Scotty, save us! Happens a lot. They need to stop parking so close to planets. Yes. Hi, Orbit, please. They try to get Harmon in an injection to knock him out, but they keep getting thrown around. Kirk runs in to protect Alexander, who's getting kind of the worst of this, and manages to distract Parman long enough for McCoy to get to him. Alexander begs them not to actually save him, just let Parman die so that the others will kill each other in the power struggle to replace him. But McCoy knocks him out anyway, and everything stops flying around. So, wait, wait a moment, Alexander, has he demonstrated any of these mental powers himself? Also, this was such a, like, they, they get there, and it's this big, t- like, stuff is flying around, people off stage are throwing things at the actors, it's actually really intense, and all of mm-hmm. a sudden, Kirk yells, shake him, shake him to break his concentration, and McCoy just starts lightly jostling him in the chair, which works. It's This episode is just this weird juxtaposition of, like, pretty good like some of the best stuff they've had in this show yet and just utterly ridiculous junk yep (laughs) right next to each other the contrast is a little jarring the crew are invited to stay the night while parman recovers and kirk talks to alexander about the other platonians apparently alexander is the only one who does not have mental abilities and that means that all of them mistreat and bully him 
the so the powers as far as he knows are some sort of innate thing that they just get at some point during their lives but he never did uh, the conversation ends abruptly when alexander is again dragged bodily out of the room it's kind of rude to treat him like this guys particularly guys yes yeah kirk and spock comment that it will be difficult for them to leave here now that they have seen the secret utopia because the platonians probably want to keep it secret reasonable i guess um you know i yeah, they might have to you know negotiate he's like yeah we're not going to t- tell anyone about your your place because you know if you don't want to be bothered then we'll just not bother you kirk decides that they should try to leave before this but apparently everything in the enterprise has been psychically locked down oh no that means they're going to be crashing in the atmosphere then isn't it probably again yeah they do that yeah. <laughs> the next day, Parman is much, much better. Kirk confronts him about how the ship is locked down and they're not allowed to leave. And Parman gets mad and starts playing Stop Hitting Yourself with Kirk's face. Yeah, you know, just slap yourself back and forth for a while and then commercial break, right? <laughs> Later on, Parman forces the crew back into his room and wants to apologize for mistreating them before. And he gives them gifts, some like ancient Greek relics that they stole from Earth, I guess. Uh, here's a uh, you know a nice little shield here, and here's some uh, medicinal cures, and also you know get out of here. Otherwise, well, we're gonna keep. Never mind. We're gonna change our mind. <laughs> They're free to go, except McCoy needs to stay because they see that they kind of need a doctor because you know the almost dying thing. Yeah. <laughs> So maybe we're not as immortal as we thought we were. Hmm. Maybe having some sort of medical professional here would be a good idea. They object, but Parman forces McCoy to sit next to him, then makes Kirk and Spock dance and sing and play horsey rides. It's it's this is the community theater uh, suddenly is a taking over Star Trek moment. Now, I'm skipping completely over these scenes because they are long and awkward and stupid and they just go on for a amazingly long chunk of the episode it's about 50 percent of the runtime is them just dancing around like idiots it's like yeah we can control you with our minds uh, yeah we get it uh, can we get back the, back to the plot they also start singing lewis carroll which i did mm-hmm. not know the ancient greeks were a fan of alice in wonderland uh, yeah I'm, I'm confused about that uh, it was uh, through the looking glass right all the time while he's making Kirk and Spock make fools of themselves. Parman keeps telling McCoy that he can stop this at any time if he just agrees to stay. No. Back in their room, McCoy is about ready to give in, but Kirk points out that there is absolutely nothing stopping Parman from letting them leave and then just destroying the ship as soon as McCoy thinks they're safe. So even agreeing to stay is not really an option. This Parman guy seems like a jerk face, so I'd do something like that. Uh, uh, Spock, uh, how, how are you covering from that being forced to laugh going on there? Yeah, not well. He says some weird stuff about anger and things. It's just that that part's a bit off. It's weird. Doesn't really go anywhere. Something about use your anger because I can't. So uh, we have to get revenge for you now? What, is that how this works? Alexander breaks a pot and goes, I'm going to stab him. And then they're going to die because they're super weak that way. Honestly, sounds like a good plan. Yes. <laughs> like so far, this is the best plan. Then Kirk goes, no, let's not do that. Uh, wait, why not? They're basically threatening to kill everyone except McCoy here. Why not? As far as I can tell, it's because he doesn't want to put Alexander in danger, but he doesn't really give any particular good reasonings. And this is a good plan. They're super physically weak. You could throw the vase at them and the shrapnel would kill them. Yeah, you basically need to just distract them for a moment in order to do it. 
They interrogate Alexander further about everyone's powers, and he says that they didn't actually get these powers until they arrived on this planet, a few months after they got there. So perhaps there's something about this planet in particular that will uh, give everyone uh, these mental powers except Alexander for some reason. And just as Spock suspects, it was soon after they began eating the local food. So something in, the, in, the, in these treats here. Let's eat up, guys. We'll, we'll gorge ourselves for a few weeks and then, uh, then we'll have mental powers too, right? McCoy, who still has Parman's medical scans from earlier, compares them with Alexander because Parman has a lot of mental powers and Alexander don't. Yep. He finds that Parman has a high amount of curadine in his bloodstream, a power source letting him use mental abilities. So, you know, eat plutonium or something and you get psychic powers. So yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's plot radiation, but of a different sort this time. <laughs> Alexander's system, on the other hand, can't actually process curadine in the same way, preventing him from using mental abilities. He just goes right through his system. Poor guy. This is actually a kind of screwed up metaphor they're using here a little bit and if the crew spent enough time there they also would get mental powers which is probably why the plutonians don't want anyone hanging around but mccoy you can get your unholy revenge if you are if you do stay here we all die so at least we got that going for us now they don't have time to sit around and wait for the thing to naturally kick in over a few months so what they decide to do is to inject themselves with the super potion of curadine so we just have some curadine hanging out and we're just gonna pump our bodies full of it apparently they also say that this would allow Alexander to have powers if he wants, but he decides that he does not want to take on the powers that have allowed the others to mistreat him. Even just for a little bit, because, you know, if your body's not able to process it correctly, I guess you'd eventually lose them, right? I don't want to imagine they all eventually lose them, because this doesn't come up in the movies. Yeah. <laughs> that they all suddenly have advanced telekinetic abilities. I can think of a few times that would have been useful. Maybe they, they do. They just uh, like sworn an oath never to use them because there's too much power there. It, you know, have an awesome responsibility if they were to make use of them. Yeah, that's why Kirk can single-handedly fight off an army of Klingons in Star Trek Three. Yes. <laughs> His control over it's breaking down. <laughs> suddenly, Uhura and Nurse Chapel are beamed down right in front of the crew, but suddenly forced marched away. Uh, hello, ladies. Um, where Goodbye, are you going? ladies. <laughs> well, that was weird. Wait, are they abducting the entirety of the crew now? Nope, just these two. Oh, okay. Back in the entertainment chamber, they find the two women now wearing long robes. Kirk and Spock enter, having been changed into Greek tunics. And Parman and the other Plutonians revealed themselves. Uh, oh, not in that kind of way. They were just standing behind a wall. I mean, it was ancient <laughs> Greece. Who knows? They began to force Kirk and Spock to dance around a little bit and then get close to Chapel and Ahura. They make Spock and Chapel kiss as she says some stuff about how she's wanted this for so long. Oh, my God. Maybe not like this. This is awkward. Yeah, it's awful. Audience here. Then mm. Uhura is forced into Kirk's arms, and they are also forced to kiss the, it's hard to count, but probably second ever interracial kiss on network television. But weird, awkwardly forced quasi-sexual like sexual assault. At least it wasn't Kirk doing the sexual assaulting. It was the, the other dude, but still. Yeah, it's it's a double, uh, you know, non-consent here. So they were both being sexually assaulted by Parman, but still historic in a weird way because the '60s were a really screwed up time. Uh, this is uh, enough to uh, get this uh, episode, uh, you know, not aired on uh, uh, stations in certain parts of the country. It was only aired in England recently. Yeah, in the UK, it was 
you know, because you know, not not because of the interracial aspect, but because of the sexual assault aspect of it. So they say. Yeah. <laughs> Let's, you know, I, I, That's I, their story. Yeah, I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt here, but you are free not to if you like. <laughs> so. <laughs> so after this, they give Kirk a whip and Spock a fire poker and make them start threatening the women with weapons. Alexander jumps down and grabs a knife to try his plan because it was a better plan. Yep. It was a good plan. <laughs> I don't think Alexander gets any credit for this. Like, he's right. You, you could just stab them with literally anything if they are just minorly injured they will they will uh, crumple easily and just you just have to avoid like curing them and they they i think they're trying to make some kind of point about nonviolence, but being that they're about to solve this whole thing violently it sort of falls apart a little bit i kind of have to wonder you know maybe uh parman was intentionally injured by somebody secretly before uh, the <laughs> whole episode began someone wanted him out of the way maybe alexander did <laughs> perhaps Anyway, he, Alexander goes to attack Parman, but he's frozen and Parman starts to force him into stabbing himself in the stomach, but then he's suddenly stopped. And yeah. Spock smiles and throws his poker down. Kirk announces that they now not only have their powers, but they're twice as strong. Oh, sweet. We can uh, mind bend everyone now. Parman sends Alexander over to stab Kirk, but Kirk turns Alexander around to go stab Parman because they're still using Alexander as a puppet both directions for some reason. Uh, you just take the knife away, just fling it out at Parman here, come on. Yeah, they don't need to have, like, he could just levitate the knife at him. In fact, one of my uh, favorite movies has two people with telekinetic powers going at it with a, uh, you know, a knife, and, and that's the that's the big climax of the movie. The Shadow? No, actually, though I, that is a good one, too. Dark City. <laughs> oh, yeah, I forgot about that scene. You don't need somebody to be holding the knife. You can just fling it around, guy. Alexander wants to be allowed to finish Parman off, but Kirk tells him that would make him just as bad as the people he hates. So instead, Kirk tells Parman that they're going to be checking in on this planet from time to time, and they also know how to match their powers now, so don't try anything, you. Yep. <laughs> don't don't be jerk-faced to anyone. Um, Shame. Alexander. Shame. Yeah. <laughs> be nice to each other for once. Parman agrees in fear. Kirk beams up, bringing Alexander with him away from this place that he hates so much, back to the Federation, never to be seen again. The end! So this is so weird, because like, like I yeah. said before, this episode simultaneously has several of the worst scenes in the entire series, but also several of the best writing they've had in the entire series. Yeah, it's like, you know, there's a weird disconnect between the writing and the, uh, and the director side of things here, and it's jarring. Mm-hmm. This is one of the first and only times in the original series that they mention what the Federation is supposed to be about at all. Oh, I missed that. Because Alexander asks if there are people like him where Kirk comes from, and he says that where he comes from, size, shape, and color make no difference at all. Excellent. Except that they definitely do because everyone in the Federation is a physically able white dude. Well, it might just be Starfleet that's kind of, uh, you know, discriminatory there. Then again, I haven't seen many people outside of Starfleet. Maybe everyone's in Starfleet. Oh, no. <laughs> Everyone is in Starfleet. You never see civilians. This is also one of the only times that the plot of the episode doesn't work out through random happenstance. They actually sit down, talk about what's going on, do a little bit of problem solving, and come up with a solution. Now, the solution is really hackneyed and convenient, but mm -hmm. they still came to it on their own through like expertise and an examination of facts. Yeah, it's like, okay, so 
we have a situation here and there are pieces of evidence that we can connect up and we can do a couple of tests to uh, see if they all come together. And holy smokes, they do. And now we have a plan. Now, the nonviolent themes that they're going through in the episode where they keep telling Alexander not to kill people and not become as bad as the people that he dislikes are undermined once again by the idea that you can only attain peaceful resolution if you have superior powers to the other people and they know it. Yeah, Parman's kind of a jerk face, but you know, you know, it, 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 he's, he's one of those characters that you, you say, yes, this is the bad example, so do not be like the bad example. Also, Kirk is being like the bad example. But ignore that. <laughs> well, they've done this a couple of times, and it's very mid-century American. Yeah. Because it's Kirk gets superior power because he's just better than everyone else. Because mm -hmm. even figuring out the physical mechanism that allows the Platonians to have mental powers, they're able to synthesize it better than they could, which like they would have figured this out at some point. Come on, guys. Yeah. <laughs> So he is stronger than Parman, who's the strongest telekinetic on the planet, and that lets him have the negotiating strength. So the, the main message is you can become strong and you can have the power to utterly destroy all who oppose you, but because you're a benevolent, nice person, you don't, and that just makes you better. Yeah. That is the actual message of peace that you get through most of Star Trek in this era, is you have the superior powers but you choose not to destroy everyone around you, so look how great you are. Yes, harmony through superior firepower. But, you know, you wouldn't use it against them, otherwise you're as bad as they are. Which, I guess at least they're making that, that moral choice at the end, but still, there's appealing to our better natures for someone like Alexander in this episode, or getting Parman to realize, oh, maybe I am the asshole here. And, you know, I, I prefer the, that second potential uh, uh, out here. Yeah, I was just thinking, so I was I was looking at Plato later, and we're going to talk about Plato a bit here, uh, because they keep, they keep talking about Plato and how they based themselves on Plato's ideas, but maybe not really. But this episode is a very weirdly accurate like, depiction of Plato's ideals as laid out in his ideal society. So should we, should we go in there, or should we uh, kind of, you know, you know, poke at other things first? It, it just made me think of... of the if you had the next generation version of this episode it would end with picard challenging parman to a dialectic style debate in which he would have to defeat parman with his superior philosophy debating skills indeed <laughs> because that is one of the things that plato is most famous for was developing the dialectic debate form of philosophy so a special sort of way to have an argument and then you come to a conclusion, hopefully. Yes, you basically make up another person to argue the opposite point that you are. He and Socrates were pretty famous for this. Yes, uh, I guess the, uh, the the cheap version of this is uh, known as the straw man argument. Um, but you, you ideally, you know, when you're doing this, you're actually giving yourself a challenge as opposed to this person is just someone going to run over. I was just thinking, how good would this have been if it ended in just a philosophical debate of about power where they convinced Parman that he had to step down? Yeah, that would be great. <laughs> it's like, wait, huh, maybe this, 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 this use of power is you know, undermining the ideals of our uh, society that we claim to believe, uh, believe in. But I guess also in the episode, it, it's maybe implied that they've kind of drifted away from that a certain amount. 
that they it's like, yeah, we have these core things that we you know claim to believe, but in practice, we're just really lazy. Well, they imply, again, the whole power corrupts doodah. They get all these godlike telekinetic powers, and now, of course, it's corrupted them. Oh, my God. Woo. We've talked about this before, that yes. it's, it's like power doesn't necessarily corrupt people. Just the people who seek out power are often easily Those corruptible. Who, yeah. yeah, they're easily corruptible. Oh, it was uh, uh, Mitchell uh, from uh, No Man Has Gone Before, right? I believe so, yes. Uh, so does, does, does his blood get a bunch of crazy stuff like this, too? Maybe. Hmm. It might be. Let's go to a blood test. <laughs> they never used this stuff again, and they knew what it was. They don't show up to the planet and go like, hey, there's weird stuff here that that's a power source. So like, hey, this place is full of corbidine, a thing we have. Yeah, yeah, maybe it's one of those things where there's something in the environment that like activates in a special way, maybe, but they don't really say anything about that. So, eh. and they never use, they never give themselves telekinetic powers again, ever. Yes. <laughs> Just shove it in the closet and forget about it. Don't worry about it. It even seems to be an incredibly rare thing to run into throughout all of later Star Trek. The number of telekinetic species are very few and far between. And it's always a surprise to them. People, you know, reading your mind, you know, that's like a dime a dozen, but, you know, able to move things? Holy smokes. But anyway, the idea that they are a degradation of Platonic ideas, which arguably all of modern Western philosophy is in some way based on. Plato is very consistently thought of as the father of Western philosophy as a school of thought. But according to Plato in his Republic, where he outlines the ideal society, this is it. Yeah. <laughs> you have the born philosopher king who is in power because he's the smartest one in the room and he was raised to be the ruler from birth because they found him to be the smartest philosopher because philosophers should definitely be in charge and would run things better than those dang politicians over there. Let me tell you. Yeah, yeah, said the philosopher. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, and so you, know, you got this philosopher king sort of at the top that's been sort of specially crafted to fit this role and they are not, he, he sort of both implies it, but also says, oh, this is not an actual dictatorship. Uh, just everyone just kind of follows their rule anyway, as opposed to, uh, you know, state control of the situation. Well, you don't have firm state control because you have an enforced three-tier caste system. Mm -hmm. And the lower two tiers are kind of both embodied by Alexander in here, because you have the second tier, which is your kind of artisan crafter entertainer class the people who need to do work but it's you know not demeaning labor and then lower down from them you have like the farmers and people who you actually need to get stuff done yes you're, you're essential employees yeah essential as we are now calling everyone <laughs> yes and uh and so you know the the, the 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 philosopher king is just you know the one of these uh three components here and they're all supposed to sort of work in uh, a, a certain amount of harmony, I guess. And the very, very interesting thing that I found, especially with what they introduced in the episode as a mineral that seems to go into their blood and give the philosopher kings more power than other people, was Plato proposed that this, 
basically as an argument for how governments function at all, which is kind of interesting, be held together with something he called the noble lie. Noble lie. Which in this particular case is that the three tiers of society exist this way because having been born out of the earth, humans have a certain amount of precious metal imbued into their souls at birth. So if you eat, if your parents eat a lot of granite, you're going to get certain kind of things. So the philosopher kings, of course, are born with gold-infused souls. The second tier down are born with silver-infused souls, and then the lowest tier are infused with bronze souls. So I guess this is very uh, Olympic as far as their medals go. Well, yeah, because that's what they did. <laughs> Though I still think it's interesting that even in ancient Greece, gold and silver were considered superior to bronze, the thing that literally their entire economy was based on. Well, I guess it's, you know, the, it's, you know their entire economy is based on it, and so it's fairly common in that economy, right? Well, mostly. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's in principle going to be the thing that you're going to run into the most. Uh, and so just like your everyday workers... It's it's the thing that makes the, uh, the the core of society function, while the rest of us are more, I guess, pretty on top of that. Yeah, you're just shiny and easily malleable. Yes. <laughs> don't ex don't overthink that metaphor. <laughs> so the idea that the philosopher kings of Platonia or whatever they call this stupid planet have a mineral infused in their bodies that gives them powers over others is an incredibly Platonian idea. Indeed. They just kind of imply, they, they sort of imply that it has to do with the powers, but the powers are linked to the minerals, that uh, Plato believed that virtue, which is kind of the Greek catch-all word for morality, moral fiber, how good or evil you are as an individual, is an inborn, unchangeable quality. Once you got this much, you don't got any more and you don't got any less. Yeah, that's about it. As opposed to Socrates, who was his partner in that particular dialectic argument, who was championing the idea that people would never intentionally do bad things and they just need to know better. So a everyone has a, you know, a certain amount of good and evil in them versus everyone's basically good. Yeah, everyone's basically good, and when bad things happen, it's because the person didn't know any better. The idea that, you know, you wouldn't intentionally do bad, that the cackling Disney villain does not exist, and no one's stated goal in life is to go out and do evil. Yes. <laughs> For the evils. But that was Socrates. According to <laughs> Plato, everyone's just born good or bad, and there's no changing it. I don't know. I, I, I feel always a little uncomfortable thinking about uh, ph uh, philosophers who are... You know, you know, implying that people are perpetually unchanging, that if you're like this, you're like this forever. Well, Plato had a big thing about that. Plato's entire worldview was based on the idea that there is an unchanging, perfect universe that exists. It's just not this one. It has some sort of ideal examples of everything that we have in our universe, but they're so much better. They're more perfect. They are more that thing and our universe is sort of a pale dream imitation of that universe which is why our universe keeps changing all the stupid time the dang thing always changing yeah people being alive the dead and then and then you know the seasons and we, we have things that fall off the, the desk and break which again as you hit up with the platonians an unchanging race of immortals yeah, they've been like this for thousands of years 
push themselves to, you know, basically, you know, embody fully this idea that they that they are living that ideal world. What I think is interesting is this one actually seems to function. They've often had things like this in uh, earlier examples of this series, and it's a common theme amongst uh, science fiction, especially of this era, that being immortal and unchanging is too boring to bear. Yep. <laughs> but this society is immortal and unchanging and is doing just fine. Yeah, they might be assholes, but you know, as far as their internal sort of structure, they're doing okay. Yeah, they're jerks. Parman's kind of strong-armed his way into power at some point and is too powerful to be challenged. Mm -hmm. There doesn't seem to be any particular political strife. They all sit around and think and abuse Alexander all day. Yeah, so I guess they have their horrible outlet and then everything else is just being deep in thought perpetually. Yeah. So I guess that is very much a uh, Plato sort of world. Yeah, this is basically Plato's ideal society as laid out in his own writing. Hmm. Maybe we should question why we uphold this jerkbag so much. <laughs> so say, this doesn't seem like a, a society that I would like to live in. It, it, it seems, you know, either I'm going to be bored out of my mind at some point because I don't want to hurt Alexander, or I'm going to be basically in his position and be abused by all these assholes. Both these kind of suck. <laughs> they also don't seem to be challenging themselves. The only time we see anyone doing anything that's not abusing the crew or alexander he's playing chess with alexander and it's implied that he's just so much better at chess that he can win handily and they're using these these uh you know oversized chess pieces which i think were kind of cool looking yeah but they're just making alexander move them around by himself while everybody else can float them whenever they feel like like we're just going to keep perpetually flaunting our powers because we're like that i guess i, I guess maybe the question is then is this intentional flaunting of power uh, necessary for this society i mean one would assume that the flaunting of power as laid out here is supposed to enforce your superiority and keep everyone in place otherwise the lower classes might get some ideas even if the lower class is a class of one you are perpetually you know you know you know making it clear that there is no chance to change the system and so the you know the, they are you know needing to actively you know, uh, uh, continue this unchanging world in a otherwise it would end up changing so there is so so even if they just sort of assume it's going to be unchanging and perfect like this forever they still have to have an active part in it it just kind of makes them jerks because of how how they carry that out. And they, they basically lay that out in the episode because Alexander says he didn't know that people like the Enterprise crew existed. And as soon mm -hmm. as he knows there are people around who are friendly, he immediately starts trying to kill everyone in sight. So yeah, it's like, well, all right, I guess it's time for the revolution, guys. Um, you in? Kirk's like, uh, no. <laughs> I mean, when was the last time they overthrew a power structure? Yeah, it's happened a few times. Uh, what episode was that? <laughs> they don't come in and overthrow any. I mean, this is too close to Earth. This is their, like, we got all of our philosophy from these guys. As soon as we're gone, they're fine. We don't mind them. This place is perfect. I would like to live here. But a, you know, a, a, a supercomputer ruling over society. No, can't have that. Yeah, they don't have any computers or pesky technology. Yeah. <laughs> it is very implied that this society is fine. Kirk is fine with how this society functions. He just doesn't like that he's trapped here. There's no critique of the uh, of uh, Plato's vision here. Just sort of like, well, we're not part of it, so we're kind of suffering. So, eh? So, uh, 
you talked about the noble lie. Uh, what about the pious fiction? Mm, I missed that one. Well, it's, it's basically something very uh, similar uh, that you know, the, the, you know, the noble lie is, you know, a, a certain sort of myth or untruth that is sort of being applied uh, to, uh, to society uh, in order to sort of keep things in this uh, current static sort of structure. Uh, the, the pious fiction is sort of related to that, except it's more applied to religion and things like that. Like, uh, I, I guess some of the, the, depending on what your religion is, I'm not, I'm not trying to judge anyone here, but if say you are, you, you are not a Mormon and you, you know, look at the book of Mormon and you say this, you know, the, uh, the, 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 you know, the, 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 the book of Mormon is a, a pious fiction that is being generated, that was generated to be, he is the underlying structure of the, this, this religion here. And, uh, you know, the same thing is, so, you know, someone who's not uh, a Muslim, you know, looking at the Quran with the same thing, you know, the, the Hebrew bio, Bible, same thing, the, these things that are sort of the, the fundamental, you know, ass- assumed truths of the world that are being applied, you know, to sort of generate everything else that comes after it. So if you don't, if you don't assume that the, the Bible is true, then anything the Bible says, you don't care about. Ah, yes. So just the idea that you have to make up something to base things on a bit yeah which is um, an interesting idea it's something that you run into in various philosophies it's kind of like where does at some point you have to get down to some base assumption and yeah, where well, you get to that base assumption is where a lot of philosophies actually differ and uh yeah i, I guess the pious fiction is sort of you know the it's like okay this maybe the the the, the ultimate truth of the universe is contained in, in you know in the in this you know this assumption here but if it's not, then yeah, we're still going to roll with it because it'll make us moral at the end of the day. Reminded, I was just reading one of the Discworld books, The Hogfather, which is basically about their Christmas. Indeed. I've, I've seen the, uh, the TV version. And at the end, there's a very good explanation of raising children with these kinds of beliefs, saying humans have to grow up believing in the little lies so that they can believe in the big lies when they're adults, like truth, beauty, and justice. Uh, there's a, a, a bit of a speech about, you know, grinding the universe down to its base components and finding anything, you know, re- you know remotely close to justice in the, in the actual physical world. Yes, grind the universe into the finest powder and sieve it through the finest sieve and find me one molecule of mercy, one atom of justice. Yeah, the, the, these big concepts, you know, we, you know, they are things that, you know, to a certain extent, they are you know, human concepts that we have, you know, it, it, at various degrees sort of invented. Uh, and, the, and us following them is a, a, a sort of a collective... Uh, you know, a cooperative agreement that we are going to trust ourselves to follow these things and assume that they are true, even if there is no fundamental force of the universe that says there is love in the world. Or is there? Because it's an interesting one that we we always sit down and go like, oh, what actually makes something love or truth or whatever? Mm-hmm. And then we go, well, you just know it when you see it, which means it is there. It's just in people. Because people just know it. It is an innate part of humanity. Being a person means you know what love is because you can do it. And you have an innate sense of fairness. We've seen this in children Mm -hmm. and other social animals. There is an innate sense of what is fair and right. And when you disrupt that, it causes problems for the individual. Like you have it in humans, you have it in crows, you have it in chimps, you have it in basically any social animal that we have looked at. 
And so, you know, these are, but these are uh, emergent phenomenon. They are things that are, you know, you know, created through the complex constructs that is our very existence. And so they, they do exist, but, you know, you can't, you know, take us apart and find the particle that it belongs to. But by that logic, everything is an emergent phenomenon. If you want to take the universe apart down to quarks and strings, then mm -hmm. everything above that is simply an emergent phenomenon of those all coming together. Exactly. Yeah, you know, an atom does not necessarily need to exist. But yet it does because the right components have come together and you know are using the, the forces of the universe to construct themselves in this particular fashion. I think it's an interesting one that people want to ignore certain emergent phenomenon and not ignore others. And I do think it's pretty telling that the ones that we always have debates about are the ones where you have to be nice to other people. Yeah. <laughs> it's almost like there's another agenda there. Anytime that someone is nice, we go, oh my God, can can this really be be kindness because they got something out of it? So there's no such thing as, you know, truly being selfless in the world. Ha ha. But that guy who killed that guy, that's human nature. That's what we're all like deep down we all want to just stab each other in the eyeball with an ice pick i mean who hasn't that's a fairly uh cynical uh, sort of framing there and uh, not one that i much care for myself we never have a debate over whether or not people are going to innately want to kill each other it's just assumed like sometimes we have the debate of whether that's human nature but it always gets down to like we are inherently violent because of survival but if you're nice it's like well i mean that's inherently selfish you're never allowed to be inherently nice i guess the one of the things in those sort of debates is that it's always sort of pushing us into these extreme circumstances where it's like, okay, if you're starving and the only person that has food is that guy over there and he's not going to let you have it unless you kill him. I'm like, well, that's a very constructed situation. And it's not one that we are going to be necessarily, you know, uh, finding ourselves in uh, very often. And the assumed reaction to any random person is not necessarily going to work out. But it's just sort of like, oh, this is sort of what this particular person who's making this argument would like the answer to be in that particular case as far as the, you know, the, end, time, uh, the end behavior. Um, but it does not necessarily lead that everyone's going to end up there. Um, and so they're sort of manufacturing evidence that isn't necessarily going to hold up in an actual real-world test. Uh, while actively ignoring any other tests that may have counterproductive examples of what human nature is. That does happen, though I do think you don't even need to ignore or manufacture, because as you said, a lot of the times when we are studying these things, especially when we're doing psychological studies on lab animals, which we love to do with rats, we are putting them in intentionally extreme situations and judging any animal's behavior by an extreme situation is not going to give you a good overview of how that animal actually behaves. Yeah, there's uh, you know, a certain amount of, okay, now I'm in a situation where I don't know how to behave anymore. Yeah, you can't, like the nicest dog is going to bite you when you back it into a corner and start hitting it with something. This is not what I was expecting. Uh, this person used to be cool. They used to pet me and give me treats. But why are they beating me now? I, I need to do something because this is painful. I need to react. And so, okay, yeah, let's, let's, let's poke the, the, the lower end of our brain. And it's like, okay, we're going to bite something. Yeah. The way that we study these things, you may as well say that all rats in nature are addicted to heroin because we've addicted them to heroin so often for lab tests. <laughs> here to here for, first, folks. All rats are addicted to heroin. Yeah. I think, you know, it, it's... I guess it sort of means that maybe we should be more mindful of, you know, when we're doing studies of human nature and things like that, 
to make sure that we're also measuring ourselves in our everyday world. Well, we've been getting some more studies recently, even of animals that we previously thought of as just violent and base, the way that we would always study rats and have all these things of like, if you put two stressed out rats in a tiny cage, they kill each other. Oh my God, what does this say about human nature? Hello. <laughs> but we've had, there have been some recent studies where um, they gave rats uh, two food levers and they, both of them did the same thing. They just gave them food and they kind of let them develop a natural preference for which lever they preferred, because that's just going to you know, happen when you have two choices that do basically the same thing. Mm -hmm. And then after they'd let the rat develop a natural preference, they hooked up that lever to a electric shock to another rat. Ooh. And the rats all immediately stopped using that lever, whether or not they knew the rat to begin with or not. They did it with rats that they had previously spent time with and ones that were complete strangers to them. As soon as they saw that that lever was hurting the other rat, they stopped using it. So this is maybe implying that the uh, even the rats have compassion. Yeah. Any social animal, any social animal that we have done any kind of experiments on and studies of psychology, as far as we can tell, has something analogous to empathy. Because that is what makes you a social animal. So, and I've said it before, and the thing that most people keep ignoring is that we are very, very social animals. We are probably one of the most social animals on the planet. And as far as you want to measure success as a species, that is what we've got. We, we have the, the, the most social you, society, I guess, uh, that uh, any you know species probably ever had on this planet. Uh, yeah, it's, it's physically the largest, I guess. Uh, you could even argue uh, that is interlinked with billions of individual people, uh, all sort of working together at various levels. And they might not all get along or get, agree on anything, but they are still come together to build a world that is, for varied degrees, working for most of us. Now, our ability to take care of one another and share information and cooperate is basically unrivaled with any other animal we've ever studied. Mm -hmm. And it is the one thing that has allowed humans to survive and thrive the way that we have. And it's something that keeps consistently being ignored in Western philosophy. There, there, there's this cool, you know, back down the emergence phenomenon thing that, that's, that is being ignored here. Together we are much more than the uh, sum of our uh, our individuality. Well, we have some interesting examples that I won't go into all of them because some of it is kind of depressing, but it's kind of this just very standard thing that once something starts working well enough that you forget it's there, you forget it's there. Mm -hmm. So it's the whole, it's like disaster preparedness. You are so prepared for a disaster that when it comes, it really doesn't affect things that much. So people go, why did we need all this preparedness? That seemed useless. That disaster wasn't too bad. Let's cut back next time. Next time they cut back and suddenly things are much worse. Yeah, because yeah. <laughs> if it worked too well, you forgot you needed it in the first place. So it's, it's one of those things that we need to be better uh, at sort of observing uh, and understanding uh, that, you know, if things are working, maybe we should keep them in place. <laughs> well, I don't think that that one's an innate thing either, because that's definitely an emergent phenomenon of the pressures we've put on people for, you know, saving money and energy and being yeah. efficient as possible, because you have to look at something and go like, oh, how much do we really need this rainy day thing? Instead of, that's a good idea, we should keep this around just in case there is a Godzilla attack. You yeah. never know. Note to self, make a real Godzilla so we can... Make sure that people have rainy day fun for God's souls in the future. Don Ozzy Mendez on us here. All right. <laughs> <laughs>
I'll avoid becoming a supervillain, I guess. That was a Watchmen reference in your Star Trek podcast. <laughs> so uh, I think we're uh, drifting a bit uh, away. Um, I, I guess as far as uh, a workable society and things like that, and uh, yeah, and, and social cre- creatures and things like that, how, how does that work with our episode here today? Well, I think the other thing that I kind of wanted to touch on a little bit, I didn't have a ton on because I know we're running a little up against our hour here. Yeah. Um, a lot of the stuff that we've gotten to compare this governmental system to Plato's is from his work, The Republic, in which he outlines his ideal society, which can arguably be placed as one of the earlier defining stories in the kind of utopian fiction genre, mm-hmm. where one outlines a society working perfectly the way that you envision a society working perfect everything's in its perfect place and everything's coming together in just the right way and everyone's happy and able to progress forward forever into the future which interestingly is kind of what next generation did with star trek they took and original series was trying a little bit i don't think it quite hit it next gen hit kind of a very good perfect medium Mm -hmm. with like here is the utopian world we're trying to get to and here are some challenges we might face within it Uh, Later Star Treks went, utopias are boring, let's have some strife and sex appeal. For better or worse. (laughs) Yeah. But utopian fiction is an interesting genre because anyone can write it, and there's been a mixed bag because you have some things that outline what seems like a pretty good society. Uh, I believe Utopia was originally a novel about how great it would be if we could use Niagara Falls as a power source to power us basically post-scarcity city because you'd be able to, by their view, harness that much raw power to create as much electricity as a society could ever possibly need and solve all of society's problems. So what you're saying is we, yeah, New York State is, is the utopian vision of the future. I mean, we like to think so. Yes. <laughs> it doesn't look so much like that right this second, but, you know. Uh, it needs some work, you know. We're going to just you know, get some editing to go in. You know, we, we're going to be getting this, this uh, you know, ideal world, uh, you know, sorted out at some point here. Don't worry about it. But then you also have works like uh, Skinner wrote his own utopian novel, which basically <laughs> amounts to we need to give everyone dog training because Skinner. Yeah. <laughs> Put everyone in the box. <laughs> yeah, essentially. No, I, uh, I myself have technically uh, done some uh, uh, utopia sort of uh, c- uh, creative works there. The first one I actually did way back in high school, and the uh, the short of the long is that it, it was a society of one person, and that's the only way I can get everything to work. <laughs> <laughs> this works out perfectly. I have <laughs> ultimate freedom as long as I don't feel like talking. Exactly. <laughs> But I had to—I sort of sorted out. You know, I was like, yeah, this person has to be so you know very alien compared to actual human beings that it's also impossible for us as human beings to have this this society. So, well, utopian fiction and something like Platonic idealism really kind of come together. Which I think we can end off things in a nice little bow here, because mm-hmm. the utopian idea, the utopian fiction, is to lay out what you believe perfection would be it's basically this is the thing that i want us all to be aiming for and i know that we're not going to get there but we can try yeah we we could strive towards this and the closer we get the uh the better things will be right it's also an interesting test of your initial philosophy because a utopia is your philosophy carried out to a logical extreme 
often an absurd extreme, to mm -hmm. reveal what kind of world it would create. And, uh, and then people out sort of that aren't necessarily on board with your philosophy can come by and like, I don't know if I could live there. Yeah, about this philosopher king thing. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, they're, they're not responsive to the, the public at all. If they just sort of decide that this is how it's going to be, that's just how it's going to be. And if, say, situations change drastically in the world out there, that their philosophy is no longer necessarily going to be helpful. We're just kind of SOL? Yeah, basically. Yeah. Hmm. That sucks. Not every philosopher king is going to wind up being Buddha here. Yeah. <laughs> Some of them could be more like Parman. Buddha gave up power as soon as he saw suffering in the world, so... Well, this is terrible. Um, um, I'm, I, I'm, I'm going to leave everybody behind now for a while. Try to figure this stuff out. Uh, don't call on me if, to let me, me, I mean, run anything. Bye. Yeah. Wait. You told me that the world was perfect. Why is that dude starving? I'm out. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> this is no utopia. I have to go deal with this now. Bye. I'm going to go meditate. Don't wait up. <laughs> Might take a while. All right. I think that's. So we, we, what have we hit? Four different religions to be sacrilegious at? Uh, at least. Yeah. <laughs> I can add some more if you like. <laughs> I want to apologize. I have deep respect for most religions, at least the underlying philosophies thereof. Yeah. Same. All right. We have strayed a bit. We are hitting up against our normal time deadline, so I think that it might be time for the galaxy's favorite game show! Hey everybody, welcome back to the game show portion of the show. We are various contestants have been racking up a fair number of points this week. And uh, we got uh, several uh, prizes to hand out now that we've uh, tallied up the scores. The first uh, prize is the Highlander Prize, which goes to the Plutonians, because they seemingly have functional immortality except for that whole mine of energy thing. Uh, what do they win, Gepwin? The Plutonians win hydrogen peroxide. Cases and cases of it. So maybe they should just sanitize some stuff. Yeah, you just kill all bacteria on this planet and, uh, and hope for the best, eh? Also, I know this episode is coming out in a few months, but probably still a good advice. Wash your hands. Seriously, folks, wash your hands. Our second prize is the Puppet Master's Prize, which goes also to the Plutonians, but also Kirk and Spock for their use of telekinetic powers to push people around, especially Alexander. Those jerk faces. What do they win, Gepwin? They win the Puppet Master movies. They can just turn puppets into horrible little serial killer B-movies and just watch those instead of pushing around people. I know that the like was the invisible string expensive or something? Because they really didn't need to do the whole tug of war with Alexander thing. True, true, true. I, I'm guessing it probably just was a little bit beyond their budget. They had to buy all those uh, togas and things after all. Our uh, uh, third prize is I'm a bricklayer, not a doctor, which once again is won by McCoy for successfully giving people telekinetic powers via drugs somehow uh, due to plot convenience. What, do they, what does he win, Gepwin? I'm going to imagine McCoy had to win some sort of confidentiality top secret super agreement because since this never comes up again, but it would be arguably the most important medical discovery in all of human history. He must have one heck of a gag order. Uh, some of our buddies over there on, uh, you know, on uh, Van Velding's uh, podcast have uh, suggested that maybe McCoy is some sort of secret agent, so that would be very fitting. Our last prize is the One Hit Point Wonder uh, prize, which goes to Armin in particular for apparently being prone to a very quick death just to a minor cut and massive infection that results. What does he win, 
Armin wins this exquisite crystal glass cannon. Don't cut yourself on it. It, uh, it may look pretty sharp, so maybe don't touch it, Armin. That's all the prices I got, Gepwin. Take us away. Thank you all for joining us. I hope that our contestants don't cut themselves at all, even a little bit. Even a little, little, little bit. It was weird watching an episode about people dying of infection right now. Yep. Stay, stay healthy, everybody, please. And thank you for joining us here on the Galaxy's Favorite Game Show! I was going to say there, uh, your, your comment about you know, people cutting themselves reminds me of a line from Neverwhere. Yes, you are very sharp. Yes, we are very, sh- you know, indeed very sharp. So sharp that sometimes we cut ourselves. Anyway, next week. <laughs> yeah, next week. Never, never heard of it. Uh, Wink of an Eye says very specifically not to confuse it with Blink of an Eye, a very good Star Trek Voyager episode. Mm-hmm. Or so, uh, Wink of an Eye, parenthesis, film, close parenthesis. Uh, this one involves uh, some, so, some people traveling very, very fast. Do they? Let's see. Based on a story by Gene L. Kuhn, could be good, could be awful, mm-hmm. because it's yeah. Lee Cronin again. Hmm. Lee Cronin has not been writing as well as Gene L. Kuhn. <laughs> Indeed. Okay, they have a landing party, no evidence of life, an insect-like buzzing. Okay, people disappear, ship begins to experience malfunctions, unseen enemy. Oh, ask for coffee. Coffee? Okay. So he drinks <laughs> enough coffee. This is that is this that Futurama episode where Fry drinks 100 cups of coffee? Maybe. Holy smokes. <laughs> Bing. <laughs> okay, sure. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> Why not? <laughs> yep. <laughs> Anywho, week of an eye next time on Watchers of Tomorrow. Uh, should we make Sonic jokes as well? Oh my god, no. Please no. <laughs> That's no good. <laughs> Next week on Watches of Tomorrow. Next time on Watchers of Tomorrow, Star Trek versus The Flash. You have been listening to Watchers of Tomorrow, a podcast on science fiction media. Find and follow Watchers of Tomorrow on Podbean, YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, Spreader, Digital Podcast, and perhaps many more to come. If you enjoy our podcast, make sure to subscribe for more. And where possible, make sure to rate your experience or leave us a review. You may find Gepwin on youtube.com slash Gepwin and Twitter at Gepwin. You may find me, Dr. Isix, on youtube.com slash Dr. Isix and Twitter at IsixLP. Music is Waveform and Maury's Principle, both by DRKRN. You can also check out the Watchers of Tomorrow Discord channel. Make sure to share the experience with your friends, family, enemies, and alien overlords. If you feel you are suffering from transporter syndrome, please be aware that the next time you step off the transporter, that you, that is now, no longer exists. <laughs> <laughs>